As we have studied Psalm 69, we have noted throughout the psalm references to the Lord, to His suffering, to those who are persecuting Him, to His uh, ministry, uh, His suffering certainly on the cross, and we've come to the end of the psalm. The last time we looked at it last week, we considered the curse that was given to those who were persecuting him, and we noted that it was no uh, light curse. Uh, Judas is referenced in Acts chapter 1 as the fulfillment of verse 25 in this psalm. May their camp be desolate, may none dwell in their tents. We took a little time to consider how that took place in the life of Judas and the fulfillment of Scripture. And there really is a call in that section for God to pour out His wrath on those who are persecuting uh, His righteous one. And we're coming to the last portion, verses 29 through verse 36 of the psalm. I'd like to read that, and then we'll consider it together as we consider this cry in distress. David writes, But I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify Him with thanksgiving. And it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive or let your heart live. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. There's a contrast from the curse back in verse 25, speaking of Judas, of an empty camp, tents where no one dwells, and a city. Cities, in fact. Zion, the city, and cities of Judah... What is taking place there? There's curse where there's an emptiness, but now there's blessing where there is a full population of those who seek the Lord. And so as we come to the end of this psalm, we're seeing the end of the righteous, the, the, the blessing of God upon the righteous, the righteous who has suffered but the righteous who is being delivered and then praising, and then as he praises, others are looking on. There's some truth about the Lord. But then you hear, and this is where this psalm, uh, there's a crescendo here, verse 34, let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. Apparently even an immortal jellyfish, right? Everything praising the Lord because of his salvation. So let's consider this last portion of this cry in distress. This is certainly his confidence in God's salvation. 
And then after his confidence in God's salvation, this universal praise to God that results as God has brought that salvation. Look at verse 29. But I am afflicted and in pain. That is evident from the portions of the psalm where he has detailed his circumstances. If you remember in this psalm, the first few verses, he describes himself as sinking, as being in water, as feeling like he's going to drown. He's hoarse from crying out to God. And that's imagery to indicate the circumstances that he's in where there are enemies who are persecuting him. And he is not the reason. It's not his actions or his life that are the reason. Uh, What is the reason? The reason, verse 7, is he is suffering for God's sake. He says, because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. And as he continues on, he describes the suffering that he is going through, but then his confidence in God's compassion. But again, he describes it in verse 14, as he petitions the Lord, deliver me from the mire, do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and the deep waters. And he is in the fear of death because the flood of water he feels will overflow him. The deep may swallow him up. The pit which I think is a symbol there of death, could shut its mouth on him, but he's trusting in the Lord. He's calling out to the Lord. And some of his pain has to do with how he feels because of the persecution he's received. Look down at verse 20. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And then in the midst of that circumstance, he looks for someone to have sympathy towards him, and he cannot find any. And instead, he receives mockery. And this is where we find another reference in verse 21 to the suffering of Christ. They gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. The Gospels speak of that as sour wine. One person, I think, helpfully suggested that this is another mockery consistent with the other mockery regarding his claim to be king. What do you bring to the king when he desires something sweet wine, something that he would enjoy? And so he's calling for something, and they bring him sour wine. It's a mockery of his claim. And then there's the curse. But the fact that he prays down the curse doesn't mean that he feels any differently. In verse 29, I am afflicted and in pain. And so he calls out for salvation. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. You might have a marginal note that this could be a declaration. Your salvation, O God, will set me on high. I think the context here suggests that whether it is a petition or a declaration, he is confident that God is going to answer his prayer. Why? Because of verse 30 and 31. Because when God does save him, when God does deliver him, he is going to give praise to the Lord. You can look through the life of David and see that David did give praise to the Lord when God delivered him. When Christ was delivered from death and raised 
and then ascended into heaven, certainly he gave praise to the Father. But there's a confidence here in the salvation of God. Can God save? Can God deliver? Can God, look at the end of verse 29, set me, the word securely is supplied, on high. That phrase, to set something or someone on high, is to put something in a place that shields it or that keeps it from danger, from anyone reaching to it, from bringing harm or damage to it. In Jeremiah, the phrase is uh, parallel with heaven, as it says, the Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation, heaven. So to be set on high, a place of safety, at least in that context, is, a, is in heaven. God certainly will bring us one day, and that place will be safe. It will be unassailable. There will be no possibility of danger or harm or anything. But here he says, may your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. Put me in an unassailable place. As he says in Psalm 59, verse 1, deliver me from my enemies, O God. Set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. And we could be thinking here in terms of a lofty rock where someone would be safe from enemies, a place which you could defend yourself in. But this is a prayer to the Lord that God would do this, that God would put him in a position of safety. It's a wonderful thing to know that when we call out for salvation, that God does put us in a place of safety, that he puts us out of eternally out of harm's way. There is nothing that will separate you or me from God's love and protection forever if we trust in Him. Now in this life, of course, we'll have tribulation, we'll have trouble, we'll have persecution if we live godly in Christ Jesus. But even if someone should take our life, even if someone would even if someone would attack us because we proclaim Jesus as the Christ and take our life, if someone would betray us as they did with William Tyndale, and Tyndale was eventually taken to the stake and he expired, where was Tyndale when he died? He was in the presence of God. And after his body is raised and he is with God in heaven, never again. No place is like that place of safety with God forever. I was kind of, something flashed across my mind from something I read recently of martyrs who, as they faced martyrdom, as they faced the stake or whatever it might be, they would say something to the effect of, this is a hard breakfast, but we shall have a good supper in heaven. The expectation and the hope of that, the confidence that we have in that, ought to delight our hearts. 
the delight of the psalmist's heart here is as God sets him on high in an unassailable place, he then is going to praise the Lord. So this plea for deliverance and God's rescuing him results then in praise to the Lord, which then brings God pleasure. Praise in verse 30, God's pleasure in verse 31. And as he praises the Lord, that's the word Hallel. And he's going to praise the name of God, which is Yahweh. So these are hallelujahs that he's going to issue forth with to God and bring glory to him through his praise. And he's going to magnify God with his thanksgiving for that deliverance. So at the end of the verse, I will praise the name of God with song, hallelujahs, singing, and then magnify him with thanksgiving, giving praise to the Lord for what he has done. Now, when you give thanks to the Lord, when you offer praise to the Lord for what he has done, that brings the Lord pleasure. In fact, that ought to encourage us when we give thanks to the Lord. These are not just words we utter into the air. They certainly have an impact when someone says, I'm so thankful for, and we hear that. But there is uh, a God in heaven who hears our thanksgiving, and he is pleased when he hears that thanksgiving. Notice what it says, it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. What he's talking about, the end of verse 30 and end of verse 31, is really the spiritual sacrifice The animal sacrifices of the Bible were never meant to be just that. Those animal sacrifices were to be brought to the Lord, but there was to be something spiritual going on in the heart of the worshiper. Whether it was a sacrifice for sin, God's not looking for just an animal to be slaughtered. He's looking for a heart that is repentant that is sorrowful, that this animal, this innocent animal has to be slain, its blood has to be shed because of something that the person had done. So God is looking for a heart that offers up to him spiritual sacrifices. I I do believe in Hebrews 13, verse 15, that there is an equivalence between this idea that's mentioned here in verses 30 and 31 and what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, through Christ or through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. God's not looking merely for the animal sacrifice. He's looking for a heart that delights in him, that gives him praise for what he has done and what He has done, in this case, his salvation. There's even an elaboration in verse 31 on an ox or a young bull, the young bull, and he describes it as horns and hooves. That's mundane. That's an animal. God's not really looking for that. What he's looking for is the heart. Psalm 50, verses 13 through 15, Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Question put so to speak, in the mouth of God. And then it says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Same words 
in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and Hebrews 13, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. This brings the Lord honor. It shows his weightiness when we give him thanks. It magnifies him. And I would suggest that certainly with one another, we ought to be giving thanks to the Lord and telling the Lord or telling one another what we're thankful for, telling the Lord certainly that we're thankful as we sing and as we talk together. But we can also do this with those who are around us who do not know the Lord. Do you do that? Are you open about the Lord with other people? I'm so thankful that the Lord did this or that the Lord did that. You don't have to hide that from people who don't believe. Show that to people who believe, if that's truly your heart. And I'm not saying be a boastful show-off or anything, but if the Lord deserves the credit, give him the credit. That's one of those ways that we are a witness to the Lord, that we give testimony to him. Do you offer up sacrifices of praise to God, and specifically in the context here, for your salvation? Do you do that? When was the last time you praised God for his salvation? That brings God pleasure when you humble yourself and tell him thank you for what he has done, how he has shown you mercy, how he has forgiven you for your sins, how he has been patient with you, kind to you, gracious to you, how he sent his son on your behalf, to die in your place. We have every reason to be thankful, but we can be sometimes very unthankful for what he's done. But when we do give thanks, not only does it give him pleasure, but look at verse 32. When God saves, and then the praise is given, there are those looking on. It says, the humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God... Let your heart revive. There's a cause and effect here. The cause is God's hearing. Look at verse 33. He hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Obviously, that in the context here, verse 29, is he's brought salvation. He has heard prayer. And as he's brought that salvation in answer to prayer, verse 32, those looking on see that. And it causes joy to them. Uh, The same word that's used in verse 32, the humble, is the same word that's used in verse 29, translated afflicted. So the humble, the afflicted, the ones who are low, the ones who they desire that same kind of salvation, that same deliverance from the Lord are looking on and seeing this act of God and in terms of the Messiah and what God did as he raised Christ from the dead and brought him to ascend at his right hand, that ought to cause us great encouragement. He took Christ from prison and judgment and crucifixion and the grave up into life and up into heaven and seated at his own right hand. Does that cause you joy? If he's the forerunner, as Hebrews says, it ought to. That is our hope. 
That gives us joy and encouragement that if God did that for our Savior with whom we are united, he will do that for us. So the humble have seen it and are glad. There's a joy and rejoicing that God has done this in answer to prayer, and he will do it for us too. So be encouraged. That's the sense of that phrase at the end of verse 32. You who seek God, let your heart revive or let your heart live. We've been studying through 1 Thessalonians. Brother John's been preaching through 1 Thessalonians 3.8. says, For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Now we are greatly encouraged if you are standing firm in the Lord. And there's great encouragement as you see God hearing prayer, answering prayer, not despising even the lowest of the low and doing for them what they could not do for themselves. Look at verse 33. For the Lord hears the needy. You know the Lord hears you when you call? How low? Well, he, psalmist, calls from the pit. He knows that God would see him even if he's in the deepest sea. The end of verse 33, does not despise his who are prisoners. You ever seen someone in a lion's den? You ever seen someone in a prison who was falsely accused? Of course, we have testimony to that in the Old Testament. You ever see someone in a muddy cistern, a pit? That was Jeremiah, Joseph, Daniel. God heard their prayers. Has your God been able to deliver you? The king said to Daniel, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel, has shut the lion's mouths. God brought deliverance to the one who cried out to him. He doesn't despise them. And they are his prisoners. Someone made the point that this has to do with the fact that they're in prison for his name's sake. God hears them. Now, if you're in prison for your own crimes, of course God will hear you too if you call out upon him. He's that merciful and good. And even if you've gone past the prison and you're now in a place of execution and the blow is about to come, death is knocking right at your door, but you say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What is the promise of the Lord to that thief on the cross today? You'll be with me in paradise. He does not despise those who call upon him. He listens. He hears. And for the Messiah, he did. And for all those who see that, they can rejoice because they too will be saved if they call upon the name of the Lord. And when God saves, that's praise to the Lord. And that's why the psalmist here calls in verse 34 to the heavens, to the earth, the seas, and everything that moves in them, that God is a God of salvation. He brings salvation to those who are in the deeps, the depths. Let all animate creation praise the Lord for God's salvation. Spurgeon said, this is the doxology of a glowing heart. The writer had fathomed the deeps and ascended to the heights, and therefore he calls on the whole range of creation to bless the Lord. So yes, all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice 
and sing to the Lord for his salvation. Now, God's salvation involves his salvation of his people. It involves the fulfillment of his promises to his people. Notice verse 35 and 36. For God will save Zion, that portion of the city of Jerusalem that indicates that God's eye is upon that city. Of course, our Savior was crucified outside of that city. But God is going to fulfill his promises, his many promises to the Jewish people. Christ is coming again, and when we think about his kingdom on earth, he will save Zion. Zion will be the place of his throne. The peoples of the earth will come there to be taught of the Lord. Notice what it says, For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah. And what that is going to be like, it says that they may dwell there and possess it. Zechariah talks about a city without any walls because the population is going to be so great. And God says, I will be a wall of fire around them and the glory in their midst. He'll be worshipped there and his people will be with him. Notice the end of the, the psalm here. The descendants of his servants will inherit it. And those who love his name will dwell in it. He will rescue the nation he will rebuild the cities. He will repopulate them, of course, with resurrection and those who have come to him. And he'll restore the land completely to those who love him. This is a faithfulness to his promises. You read the Old Testament, you see a restoration of this nation by God and his grace. This is a faithfulness to his covenant. He will give them a new heart. He will put his spirit within them. They will live in the land and those tents, those houses will be filled with singing and praise to the Lord as God is with his people. I love Psalm 118, verse 15, 115, excuse me, 15. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. Is there praise in your house for the Lord? If his salvation has come to you, there ought to be. That is our destiny. Fellowship with God, with his people. Praise to him forever. Notice it says the descendants of his servants will inherit it. Certainly his own people, the, the Jewish nation to whom he made those promises. Obviously, these are those elect, those who are redeemed. But then it says, those who love his name. Do you love his name? Have you come by faith to love the name of Jesus because he has saved you from your sins? It's a wonderful psalm and a wonderful testimony to God's salvation, not only of his own Messiah, to bring him to the place of ruling over all, but also of his people, those who trust in him. Spurgeon said, Thus a psalm which began in the deep waters. And that's where we began. Remember that? Look that back at verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. Sinking in the mud, 
the flood overflowing him. His voice is hoarse because he's crying out in distress. Has God heard? The psalm which began in the deep waters ends in the city which has foundations. How gracious, he says, is the change. Hallelujah. Our God is a God of salvation. He is worthy of our praise. How can we keep silent? And what a hope and expectation we have ahead of us. I was reading this week about heaven from a devotional written by a man named Octavius Winslow. And he said, we think too little about heaven. But if you stop and think of the glory of the fellowship that you will have if you know the Lord with God, with His people, with the angels. He quoted from Hebrews as the writer of Hebrews describes heaven. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Just think about that. But it doesn't end there. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. It's not crying out for vengeance. That's what Abel's blood was crying out from the ground for. Blood of Christ cries out, speaks forgiveness for all who come to Him. It's a wonderful thing. Let's close tonight with Him. My hope is in the Lord. Number 427. Stand with me and sing. 427, my hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. 427, stand together, let's sing.